Well, we are certainly blessed to have a worship pastor like that. Amen? That's a special song for him. I know. I remember being in here when his father passed away for his father's funeral and Ryan. That song meant a lot to his dad. And Ryan played that song. And it was just a really special time. Just a, just a special, special song. Well, uh, before I begin, this is also a special Sunday for me. This is my first time to preach as a father of three boys. That is uh, Caleb Michael Loudermilk. He was born about two weeks ago. So if I look sleep deprived, it's probably because I'm sleep deprived, but got my A game. I'm ready to roll. But just thank you so much for the prayers and the encouragement. We've been so blessed to welcome him home and his brothers have been loving on him and just the miracle of life just blows us away each and every time. So thank you again for your prayers. Well, the year was 1993, and uh, I was living as a, um, a precocious sixth grader on the northwest side of uh, San Antonio, pondering some of life's kind of major existential questions. You know, the things that sixth graders typically ponder, like the concept of time, the nature of being. And then, of course, the big one, the big one. Why doesn't the girl across the street, Victoria Gallegos, like me? (laughs) Like, doesn't she know that I was recently named part of the gifted and talented program at Hobby Middle School? (laughs) I was the starting forward on the seventh grade uh, championship, district championship basketball team. What is she possibly looking for? Doesn't she know she will one day be my wife and the mother of my three boys? What's holding her back? And so as I wallowed in my self-pity dealing with these devastating set of circumstances, I turned where so many of us turn when we reach that place of sadness. I turned to really depressing music. And so around that time, there was a rock band out of Georgia named R.E.M., that had just come out with a song titled, Everybody Hurts. So I want to invite you in to my 13-year-old house and the song that was on repeat on my television. Just so I want you to get a glimpse of what was going on. My day is I know what you're thinking. That song is terrible (laughs) and really depressing. But that's the whole point, okay? That was the whole point. You'll be singing out on the way home from church. (laughs) But listen to the lyrics because they really are poignant. 
He says, when your day is long and the night is yours alone, when you're sure you've had enough of this life, well, hang on. Don't let yourself go because everybody cries and everybody hurts sometimes. And I remember thinking, even as a teenager, that those words really are true. Like everyone really does hurt. Sometimes no one escapes this life without having to deal with sadness or setbacks or discouragement. Everybody hurts sometimes. And friends, this is true for the believer and for the non-believer, for the Christian and for the non-Christian. Being a follower of Christ is not an immunization from heartache, but it's rather an injection of hope in the midst of it. Everyone who has stepped foot on this earth has experienced pain. And the Apostle Paul is no different. You know, it's really easy to view Paul as kind of this indestructible, intrepid, church planning extraordinaire, which he was, no question about it. But if we only look through, if we only see Paul through that one lens, we miss out on a really important truth, which is that Paul was human. And therefore susceptible to all of the emotions and setbacks that befall on humanity. And so as we come into our text this morning, in the book of Acts, we're going to be continuing this missionary journey with Paul. And we're going to find him entering a new city. But he's going to be entering this city pretty dejected. He's going to be alone, scared, depressed, and in, and depressed and in need of encouragement. And along the way, we're going to see God meet our brother Paul, right where he's at, and encourage him in a variety of ways in a most unlikely of places. And as we look at those ways in which God encouraged Paul, I want us to be reminded of the ways that God has encouraged each one of our hearts, even when we are in our places of brokenness and sadness, for our God is faithful. And may we never lose sight of his gracious hand, even in the darkest of days. So if you'll please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 18. We'll be in verses 1 through 22 this morning as we continue on Paul's second missionary journey. Now chapter 18 starts this way in verse 1. It says, After these things he left Athens and went to Corinth, he being Paul. Now if you've been with us this whole time through the book of Acts, you know that the second half of Acts is really focused on the ministry of Paul. And Paul's ministry in the book of Acts really revolves around three missionary journeys. And we are currently on the second one. It began in chapter 15 of the book of Acts when Paul departed from Antioch, Syria, there in the east. And he traveled west through modern-day Turkey, through places like Derby and Lystra, where he invites his young associate Timothy to come join along and have some fun with him on the journey. But then instead of heading up to Galatia and circling back down like he did in his first missionary journey, Paul, impressed upon by the Holy Spirit, goes west, way west. And he goes across the rest of Asia and then into Troas and then across the sea into the continent of modern-day Europe. And this is called Paul's Macedonian call. And once Paul and his team arrive in Europe, as you can see, the cities that are pretty jumbled together there in Europe, some, some things never change, right? 
And so he arrives over there and he goes to these different cities and plants churches in places like Philippi and Thessalonica. And then he heads over to Berea and spends time there and then heads south to Athens. And then after being in Athens, which we heard of last week, his time there, he then heads 50 miles west to the port city of Corinth in modern day Greece. And as I mentioned earlier, Paul arrives in Corinth in a very fragile state, a very fragile state. If you look at the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul writes to the church in Corinth years later, the church that he plants in this chapter 18 of the book of Acts, Paul reminisces and, and, and confides in them the emotions that he felt when he arrived. And this is what he says. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul says, when I arrived in Corinth, I was a wreck. I was an emotional wreck. And there's really two reasons for this. If you ask, well, why was Paul struggling so badly? Two reasons. Number one, his past experiences. And then number two, his present location. So his past experiences and his present location. Just think about everything that Paul had endured just in the past year. He had had a debilitating and extremely difficult ministry separation from his good friend Barnabas. We have Paul getting jailed and beaten in Philippi. We have him being threatened and run out of Thessalonica and Berea. And then he's mocked and ridiculed and scoffed at in Athens. And so his past experiences are, are catching up with him and they're weighing upon him. And if that's not enough, he's also dealing with his present location, the city of Corinth. A city of, shall we say, unique challenges. Corinth was the largest city in Greece. It was 20 times the size of Athens with 200,000 people. It was the capital of the Roman province there. And it was infamous, and I mean infamous, for its immorality. And the immorality of Corinth really stemmed from two sources. First of all, it was a port city, and it was the center for east-west trade there in Greece. And so it was a place that was very transient. You had a lot of sailors and merchants come through. So you had people with time, with money to burn, and with various immoral pursuits at their fingertips. And then the second great source of immorality at Corinth was its temple of Af to Aphrodite. Its temple to Aphrodite. Here's a picture. The temple of Aphrodite was up on a cliff. There's still some remains there today. And Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love. And they had built a temple for her on what's called, this is called the Acro-Corinth, this 2,000-foot plateau outside of, of the city of Corinth that you could look up and see. And this temple of Aphrodite employed a 1,000 religious prostitutes. And these prostitutes who, quote-unquote, ministered there would, would perform services as part of the pagan worship that would take place at the temple. And while this had somewhat dissipated by the time Paul arrived... It had infected the culture there in, Cor in Corinth. And they had embraced this deviant sexual ethic wholeheartedly. And because of it, they were known throughout the Roman Empire for, its, for their immorality. As a matter of fact, beginning in the 5th century B.C., the verb to Corinthianize. So hundreds of years before Paul arrives, the verb to Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral. 
So to act like a Corinthian was a pejorative statement applied to someone who was acting in an incredibly indecent way. And as an aside, this is also a great insight into how sometimes a culture can infect a local church. Because what's one of the, the major sins that Paul is going to have to deal with in the church in Corinth? is sexual immorality. And he has to write ad nauseum about that in 1 Corinthians because of it. And so this is where Paul now finds himself. He's been beat down. He's been bounced around. Most, and most recently, he's gone from the academic center of the world there in Athens to the central capital there in Corinth. He's gone from the Ivy Tower of the Ivy League to the bright lights of the Vegas Strip. And he's feeling weak, fearful, and beat down because of it. And yet Paul's disposition does not stay this way very long. Because soon after he arrives in Corinth, he meets a couple who are going to change his life forever. And he there's a special couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And with, a na- with names like that, how can you not be a powerful ministry couple? <laughs> and this is what it says, verse 2. It says, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the emperor of Rome at the time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Now, as we, as we go through the passage this morning, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to unpack six different ways that God encouraged Paul while he was in Corinth. Six, six different ways that God really just spoke truth into, into Paul's spirit and encouraged him during his stay in the city of Corinth. And the first of these ways that God encouraged him is through the gift of friends. Friends. When Paul arrives in Corinth, one of the first things he does is he goes to start a business. Paul is bivocational. He's both a minister of the gospel and a skilled laborer in the marketplace. The text tells us he is a tent maker. But the Greek word there encompasses something a little broader. It says that basically he, was, he, he worked with leather. He was a leather worker, which very well could have entailed working with tents. So Paul arrives in Corinth, he's setting up his business, he's getting a lay of the land, he's doing a market analysis, and somehow along the way he rubs shoulders with Priscilla and Aquila, who not only share his vocation, but more importantly they share his passion, because they share his faith. And all three of their lives are forever changed. They have that instantaneous deep connection That if you have experienced that before, you know how special that is. And you know how rare that is. And they just bond right away. C.S. Lewis once described it this way. He said, friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. And it's like Paul is in Corinth and he's alone and he's isolated. And then he meets this couple and it's like he says, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. And Priscilla and Aquila will become lifelong friends of Paul's. He will live with them. He will travel with them. He will do ministry with them. He will plant churches with them. He will just flat out do life with them. They are in his small group, his life group, his cell group, his accountability group, his DNA group, you name it. They're in it. They become lifelong and some of the dearest friends of the Apostle Paul. You see, even Paul longed for relationships. 
And that shouldn't surprise us because at the end of the day, we are all very similar. Everyone desires to be loved. Everyone desires to be intimately known. Everyone desires to engage in deep, meaningful relationships. It was true for Paul. It's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for everyone who walks on the face of this earth. And the reason is because God created us that way. I know you've heard me say this before, but we are, before, but we are created for deep relationships because the God of the universe, whose fingerprints are all over each one of us, is deeply relational in himself. We see it in the Godhead, in the intra-Trinitarian relationships that exist between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our God is deeply relational. We see how personal and relational our God is in the Incarnation. As he took on flesh and and dwelt among us, and as we look at the life of Christ, we would say, that is a guy who had some of the deepest relationships I've ever seen. God in the flesh, personal and relational. We see it in his relationship with the nation of Israel and his faithfulness to the nation of Israel. We see God's personal and relational nature shine through and his relationship to the church and his faithfulness to each one of us. God is deeply relational. God is deeply personal. And so are we as those who are created in his image. And this is why love, not hippie view of love, not a postmodern view of love, but a a biblical definition of of love, which is one of self-giving. Not self-serving, but giving of yourself. That type of love is the greatest characteristic of the Christian and the Christian life. And why that love, that love is the greatest apologetic to an unbelieving world. Because it is the one thing that can both be clearly communicated that is also deeply desired. It can be clearly communicated by uh, everywhere and it is deeply desired by everyone. When Paul was alone and hurting, God showed up and encouraged him through some friends, through Priscilla and Aquila. Now, not only is Paul making new friends, he's also preaching the gospel, trying to make new disciples. We see this in verse 4. It says, And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Tim preached a few weeks ago and he said, So Paul goes into a city and he does what he always does. So that's exactly what I'm going to say. Paul goes into a city... And he does what he always does. He arrives, he says, okay, where's the synagogue? There's the synagogue. He finds it, sets up his business, goes to the synagogue, and starts reasoning with the Jews there from the scriptures, trying to show them from their very scriptures that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And Corinth is no no different. But at the beginning, he's kind of doing this part-time, it seems, and he's doing this alone. But that pattern changes when his two ministry buddies arrive. Because not only did God encourage Paul through friends, but secondly, he encouraged him through fellow workers. Look at verse 5. It says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So Paul and Silas head out. They pick up Timothy. They're planning these churches in Europe. They leave those different cities. And Paul says, time out. We need to go see how they're doing. 
We need to check up on them. You see, Paul gets the reality that the two calls on the Christian life, the two calls on each one of our lives, is a call to evangelism and a call to discipleship. We are to be reaching out to the world and reproducing Christ's followers who therefore do the same. And so when Paul leaves and they're heading down south, he says, hey, Timothy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Thessalonica. Check up on the church in Thessalonica. Let, them know, let me know how they're doing. Equip them. Hey, Silas, head up to Macedonia. Make sure you get to Philippi. See how they're doing. And then come back and report to me. And so they arrive there in Corinth, and Paul is most certainly and assuredly thrilled that they've come back. His fellow partners have arrived, but they're bringing not just themselves. They're bringing something else that's going to encourage Paul. They're bringing funds. They're bringing money with them. These churches had blessed them and given them money to give to Paul. This is not explicit in the text in Acts chapter 18. It's implied by now him being able to minister completely to the word. And then Paul references it in two places in the New Testament. The first place is in Philippians 4.15. Paul writes, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, man, y'all were the first. Remember the very beginning? Y'all gave to me. Nobody else did. You allowed me to do ministry. And then as the question to where, he answers that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, when I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Paul tells the Corinthian church, I didn't have to take money from you because the church in Macedonia, the Philippians, they gave money to me. They gave money to me. Because of the generous ministry gift of the Philippians, Paul is now able to minister completely and unhindered to the Corinthian church. It's the, it's the early church supporting their first missionary. You see, Paul was committed to being bivocational. It's part of his Jewish upbringing. But he was not against taking on support. As a matter of fact, or raising funds or being paid for ministry. As a matter of fact, he did that thing quite a bit. The book of Romans, in many ways, is a long missionary support letter. And when he he got this gift, it allowed him to minister completely and fully to the word. And the reality is that some individuals have the opportunity to get paid to do ministry. And that's a a wonderful thing. Whether it's being supported uh, by by individuals as a missionary, whether you work for a parachurch organization and you're supported, or whether you're like me and I work within a local church, it's a wonderful thing to be able to be paid and to do ministry. But the majority of you do not. The majority of you are bivocational. You have a job and you have a ministry, and that is wonderful as well. That is wonderful. You you work at a bank, and you do a Bible study with some of the other guys that you work with. Or you lead a student ministry, a junior class Bible study over here. You're a third grade teacher, but you have a ministry of pouring in to your kids or to going to Bible club or to meeting with their parents and speaking truth into parents. 
You're a stay-at-home mom and your ministry is to disciple your kids and to raise up godly men and women. You have a job and you have a ministry. And my heart is that you would hear me and that you would not feel less pastoral or less able to be used or less important because you don't office above a sanctuary. Paul was bivocational, and last I checked, he had a pretty effective ministry. Amen? There's a guy who used to walk around these halls by the name of Russell Kelfer. Many of you may have known him. Russell had a, had a huge ministry teaching in ABF and discipling men in our church. And I never got to meet Mr. Kelfer. He passed away 16 years ago. But I'll tell you this, there's not a week that goes by where someone at Wayside doesn't come up to me and talk to me about Russell Kelfer and the impact Russell Kelfer had on their life. He was a tire salesman. He had his own tire business. And God gave him an incredibly fruitful ministry. God calls everyone into ministry. Where he calls you and, and whether or not you're paid, that's his prerogative. He ordains different things for different people. And our job and our call is to be faithful to what he has for each one of us. And so as God encourages Paul in Corinth, he, he does it through friends, he does it through fellow workers, he does it through funds. I hope you're catching a trend here. And he does it fourthly through fruit, spiritual fruit. Look at verse 7. It says, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, excuse me, verse 6. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So the Jews respond to Paul's preaching with unbelief, with opposition. So Paul turns his attention to the Gentiles, and then God blesses him with fruit, with spiritual fruit through conversions. First, it's a God-fearing Roman named Justice, and then right next door, the leader of the synagogue, the leader of the synagogue, a guy by the name of Crispus comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And then Luke adds, many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized. It's incredible. You know, nothing is more catalytic to the spiritual fervor of a local church or a pastor or a believer than that of new believers, new Christians. The blessing of seeing someone come to the Lord. The blessing of seeing someone be baptized and declare their faith and their allegiance to Christ. The blessing of seeing a Christian mature from a spectator to a reproducer in their Christian life. These are the joys of ministry. And they're not just reserved for pastors. They're for all of us. They're for all of us as we partake in the ministry that God has for us. And they are incredibly encouraging. And when Paul needed encouragement, God blessed him not only with friends and co-workers like Silas, but he also blessed him with fruit like Justice and Crispus. And yet despite that, despite that fruit, Paul is still human and he's still discouraged. And so God comes and encourages him a fifth way. And this is through fatherly love. Look at verses 9 through 11. 
It says, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So the Lord comes and he speaks to Paul in a vision at night as as a father to a son. And the Lord says, Paul, it's okay. Paul, I'm with you. I know you're afraid, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be with you this whole time. And listen to me, Paul, nothing is going to happen to you. And I'll tell you nothing, Paul, you got to go preach, brother. Because I've got people in that city. I've done all the work. I've got spiritual fruit just ready to be picked, man. But you've got to go. You've got to go, Paul. And I'll be with you. Don't be afraid. I got kind of uh, insight into this a few weeks ago. I was at uh, Fiesta, Texas with my sons Elijah and Luke on what we like to call a daddy dude day. So we're walking through Fiesta, Texas, and we walk through Rockville High. And then we look up, and that's when we see the ride known as the Power Surge with the tagline, a shocking experience. Now, the Power Surge is a huge log ride there at Fiesta, Texas, with a big drop, a lot of water, and a ton of fun, at least for some people. And so we walk up to the ride, and Elijah, my oldest, gets out, and he walks up, and I notice that for the first time ever, he's just tall enough to ride the Power Surge. So I, as a good father, trying to encourage bravery in my boys. I said, Elijah, you're tall enough to ride. Let's do this, man. Let's ride. And he goes, Dad, I don't know. I'm kind of scared. And I squatted down and I looked Elijah in the eye. I said, hey, I'm going to be right there with you, man. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to put my arm around you. I'm not going to let anything happen to you. Not that I can control what happens with the power surge, but nonetheless, (laughs) I'm not going to let anything happen to you. And he looks at me and says, okay, Dad, if you go with me, I'll do it. So we get in our double stroller and we walk down to the power surge, and that's where it actually dawns on me, oh, crud, Luke's not tall enough to ride. (laughs) But don't worry, I found a trustworthy Fiesta Texas employee, and I left Luke with him. it was, not, it was not very crowded. Uh, they were trustworthy, but you might, I mean, I, don't bring that up with my wife or anything like that. <laughs> or CPS or whoever you run into. So I leave Luke in the stroller. Elijah and I get in the ride, and, you know, we go up. We go up to the top, and I look at him, and he's like, oh, no. And so I, I just grab him tighter, and we go down. We get wet, hit the big splash, you know, and I look over, and he is just beaming, smiling, laughing, wanting to do it again. I, on the other hand, also looked over because I was in an immense amount of pain. (laughs) I had effectively jarred my lower back at the landing and thus was in need of encouragement as well. (laughs) But you get the point, right? He could do it because I was there with him. There's a, there's a great quote by the famous former slave and, and uh, abolitionist Frederick Douglass when asked how he was able to withstand such opposition to his fight to end slavery. Douglass remarked, one and God make a majority. 
I know that one in God make a majority. You see, we as humans and we as Christians, myself included, we are so prone to fear, aren't we? I mean, we can, we're just afraid about so many things, right? And God knows that. It's one of the reasons why one of the main commands in his text time and time again is, Fear not, for I am with you. God is continually reminding us that this world cannot take what it is that only God can give. And what it is that only God can give is life and eternal life with him. No one can take that away from us. That's why Colossians 3 Paul, writing to the the Colossians, he says that our life is hidden with Christ in God. We have died. In chapter 6 of Romans, we have been baptized into his death. We are buried with Christ. We have identified with him. No one can take our life away. No one. So fear not. And so God shows up and encourages Paul a fifth way, through fatherly love. And then lastly... A sixth way through divine favor. Divine favor. Look at verses 12 through 17. It says, But while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. So Paul preaches the gospel like he always does. It causes a stir like it always did. And the Jews bring him before the proconsul, Galileo, for trial. And Galileo is the proconsul, so he's like the governor, the mayor, the dictator, the Supreme Court, all wrapped into one. He's a powerful and influential guy. And they bring him up there and they say, this guy right here, this Paul guy, he is breaking the law. He's doing something very, very bad. And they bring him to this. This is the Bema seat right here. So this is where, this is in Corinth, so this is where uh, Galileo would have been. This is what Paul references in 1 Corinthians where he talks about God on the Bema seat judging Christians and their actions and rewards. Okay, so this is the picture he's looking at. So they're there before, and Paul is about to give a defense. He's about to say, no, you're wrong. And before he can go there, Galileo steps in and says, time out. And he looks at the prosecution, and he says, you have got to be kidding me. He says, you've got to be kidding me. What you've brought before me is a matter of Roman law. I mean, it's not a matter of Roman law. It's a matter of Jewish theology. I'm a Roman proconsul, not a Jewish theologian. Therefore, get off my lawn. (laughs) Get away from me. And a riot ensues. They beat up Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, fascinatingly. I don't know if that's a word. In 1 Corinthians... Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, Greetings from Paul and from our brother Sosthenes. Possibly, that was a common name, but possibly that same Sosthenes who got beat up, got beaten to repentance and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this whole trial may not seem like a big deal, but follow me here. It resulted in the official toleration of Christianity. Okay? 
Because when a Roman proconsul made a decision, that acted kind of like the Supreme Court does, and it became the law of the land in the Roman Empire. So now Paul had political cover to both minister and preach the gospel. And because of that, he stays in Corinth for a year and a half, which is his longest ministry stay on the first two missionary journeys. And while there, he plants the church in Corinth and builds them up. He writes two epistles, the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And he cultivates some deep relationships that will impact his ministry and his life for years to come. And then when he leaves after that year and a half, which verses 18 through 22 show, he goes down back to Jerusalem for the Passover, up to Antioch where the journey concludes. A missionary journey that lasted three years saw him travel over 2,800 miles, saw churches planted in places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, and even Ephesus. I mean, just a monumental journey in which Paul needed monumental encouragement to finish, encouragement to finish, which he received through the Lord and through the blessing of friends, fellow workers, funds, fruit, fatherly love, and then divine favor. And as we close this morning, I want us to think about one truth that really jumped out at me from the text. We know that God is a God of encouragement. But what I want us to take a minute and think about is how God typically encourages. How does God typically encourage? Because I want to submit to you that the most common way that God chooses to minister to the hearts of his people is through the lives of his people. The most common way that God chooses to minister to the hearts of his people is through the, the, the various lives of his people. He loves using his people to accomplish his purposes for his glory. And we are all examples of that. We are all recipients of that. And I'm no different. I know for certain that I would not be up here preaching if it were not for something that happened to me all the way back when I was 19 years old. I was working at Camp Canacuck, a Christian sports camp in Missouri. It was my first summer there, and I'd been there a few weeks, and I was flat out miserable. I mean, I was just miserable. And I, was, I, I wanted to go home. I was supposed to be there a second month, and I was ready to quit. I was just at a cabin of 13-year-old boys, and they were just eating me alive. And I remember one day I'm walking from the dining hall, and I'm walking back to my cabin, just dreading what was to come. And a man by the name of Chris Cooper comes alongside of me. And Coops, as he was affectionately known, was the director of the camp there at Canicut. And he comes up to me, probably not knowing I'm in such a, uh, an emotional state, and he puts his arm around me. And Coops says, hey, la leche. Because they, I know, they called me leche for milk. You get that. Yeah, okay, we're in San Antonio. Okay. But he called me la leche. And then he said, brother, so I want you to know something. You are a phenomenal counselor. And he said, let me tell you one more thing. He goes, I think you're crazy if you don't do ministry with the rest of your life. And in those 30 seconds from that conversation until I walked in the cabin, I went from like this dejected, depressed counselor to thinking I was like the second coming of Billy Graham. <laughs> All right? And not only did I come back for the second month, friends, I went back the next three summers. I spent my college summers at Canicook, where God continued to refine my character, shape my heart, and give me a vision of a life of ministry. 
God did, accomplished his purpose by working through his people. In this case, it was Chris Cooper speaking truth into my life. And it changed me forever. It changed me. We are tools in the hands of a mighty God. And we are tools in the hands of a mighty God because a mighty God took on flesh and came to save us. And that is what we celebrate when we come to the communion table. We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ took on flesh, left heaven and came to earth, lived a perfect life in our place, and died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. We've spoken a lot about the need for encouragement this morning. And we all need to be encouraged, right? But the reality is we need something so much greater than encouragement. We need a Savior. We need something that no one else can give, that only God can give. So God did what only he could do. And he didn't send people to encourage us. He sent himself to save us. And this is what we celebrate. If you've never taken that step of faith, if you've never asked Jesus Christ and said, and said Lord, I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the grave. I believe, Lord, and I'm here to follow you. If you've never done that, God, I pray, guys, I pray the Spirit would just move in your hearts and that you would respond with faith, that you would heed God's call and that you would come home. I want to invite the men forward right now, and they're going to pass out the elements. And as they do, and as you hold the elements, we'll take them together in a few minutes. I just want you to go before the Lord and just confess what it is that you need to confess. Ask him what it is that you need to hear. What are areas in your life that he wants to move in? What are fears that you're holding on to? Just go before and ask him. We invite all believers in Jesus Christ as part of his church to partake in communion. And we'll take this together in a few minutes.
Well, a good father knows what gifts to give his children. And we have a good, good father. And so he didn't send friends to encourage us and lie to us and tell us we're okay. He sent the son, God the son, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, who took on flesh and died for our sins. And as John the Baptist said, there he goes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the body of Christ, eat in remembrance of him. Sometimes when I talk with people and talk to them about how Jesus Christ was God and he came to die, that's so baffling, right? I mean, it's beyond their scope. Why would God die? Why would Jesus die? It makes no sense. And yet, if you think about it, it makes total sense because our God is holy and he is righteous. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so when we look upon the cross, we not only see the truest depiction of divine love, we see God's righteousness shining through in all its glory. The blood of Christ, drink in remembrance of him. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we are humbled to come before you and, and just proclaim your goodness and your faithfulness. God, each of us has turned our back from you. And God, you came to redeem us. And God, each of us fall into periods and times of discouragement and depression, and you come to encourage us. God, may we open our eyes to the grace and the beauty and the fullness of goodness that you are and the life that you bring. God, we thank you for your word this morning and that when Paul was at his lowest, you came and you ministered to his heart. And we thank you that you still do that. You still come and you still minister each, each one of our hearts. God, thank you for this time together that we were able to worship you. And God, would we continue to go out these doors and make much of you to a world that desperately needs you. God, thank you for this day. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. There'll be prayer partners up front that would love to pray with you. Uh, if you have something you would like to pray with, pray for. The rest of y'all have a wonderful 4th of July holiday, and we'll see you back next week.